baby Parker because she's my daughter. But she's my favorite all-time worship leader. And my son-in-law there is sitting on the front row. I like him pretty good, too. He's all right. I, I wanted to say to you, we have our mission team in from North Carolina today. And they, we have about 60 of them in, uh, under, about 54, I think, actually, was the total that came. And they will all be here helping us this week with about seven different area churches. And one of the churches they'll be helping is our church here. So if you're with the mission team that drove all the way in from North Carolina, came in last night, passed out flyers, got up early, drove from North Carolina, came here, passed out flyers, helped decorate before they got to sleep. So will you guys stand up if you're with that team? I just want everybody to see who you guys are. Let's give them a hand. And um, I know they'll be here this week helping out, and we appreciate them. And they will uh, be helping you with your VBS. So we'll be having lunch afterwards for all of our workers together and get to know them a little bit and have lunch with us. And we'll talk about what VBS will look like this week. Amen. Well, let's open our Bibles together today. Let's open them together to the book of Acts in chapter 4. The message today is, is one that is very, very important that you hear. It is vitally important that this congregation hear it. This is one of those messages that I recommend you listen to carefully, take notes, and listen to again later uh, online. And the reason is this, is because our church here is looking for a pastor. As you know, I'm the interim pastor, so I won't be here forever, and you're looking for your forever pastor. And as you're looking for your forever pastor, I want to look at some biblical instruction today as to what kind of pastor you need to be looking for. So I want to look at the subject of finding God's man. Finding God's man. So how will you know when God's man gets here? How will you know when God's man gets here? Well, before we go there, I want to talk to you just for a minute about what uh, about a friend of mine. Now, see the shoes I'm wearing? These shoes are called Echo Shoes. It's all I'm ever going to wear. I, I, I just started wearing these about a year ago. And from now on, all I'm going to wear is Echo Shoes. They're so comfortable. But you know why I bought the Echo Shoes? And then my son bought Echo Shoes, and, and I tell everybody about Echo Shoes. You know why I tell everybody about Echo Shoes? Because I met the greatest shoe salesman of all time. I'm not kidding. I am not kidding. I went in for a comfortable pair of shoes in the department store to find some shoes, and I met the greatest shoe salesman of all time. He's down in Clarksville. His name's Monty. I have never met anybody in my life so passionate about selling shoes. He's an older gentleman, and he's kind of crippled up in the way he walks. But Monty believes with all of his heart. I, I am not kidding you. He is in Dillard's down in Clarksville. Go meet him, and you'll see what I'm talking about. Ask for Monty. He believes with all of his heart that every pair of shoes this guy sells, he is changing the world. 
He believes it. Like the guy won't let you go. He talks to you forever and explains them to you. And he really does believe deep down in his heart that what he does every day makes a difference. And it does, actually. I, I feel better. I, had, I, had a bad, I have a bad back, and, and these shoes help. That's what he helped me with. And, and, and he believes it to the core of his being. I, I, I rarely meet people that are serving in their calling. I meet people that are in jobs all the time. They have a job. Hey, can I just tell you, if you have a job, find another one and quit that one. Find a calling. This guy's calling is to sell shoes, to do it well. And, and as you begin to look for a pastor, let me just say this. You're looking for somebody like Monty that knows what their calling is. Somebody that's not looking for a job, but somebody that's looking for the call of God on their life. And they are so passionate about it that they believe when they're serving in that calling that they are changing the world. That's who you're looking for. Now let me tell you who you're not looking for before we get to the text. Before we get to the text, let me tell you who you're not looking for. You're not looking for a position for the popular. You're not looking to fill a position with the popular. And popular just means whoever everybody likes the best. And if you begin to look for a pastor, and you begin to look for a pastor that fits the popularity contest, and this guy's more popular than that guy, and, and it becomes a popularity contest within the congregation, you're going to get the wrong guy. It's not a position for the popular. The other thing it's not is it is not employment for the entertaining. It's not employment for the entertaining. If it was employment for the entertaining, then you should look for your pastor in Hollywood because they do it better than anybody else. You're not looking for an entertainer. And oftentimes when we hear someone preach or speak, the thing is, is we're like, I really like that guy because he's so entertaining. Do you really want someone that's just entertaining looking out for your souls? Did you know that it says in the book of Hebrews that the, the pastoral position, when you call someone to be the pastor, that they have to give an account to watch out for your souls? So popularity isn't, isn't a good requirement, right? And, and, and just being entertaining isn't a good requirement. It's not a competition for the cool either. It's also not a competition for the cool. Uh, can I just say candidly, uh, and I shouldn't say this because I know we're on Facebook Live and stuff and people will see, but I'm going to say it anyway. I'm going to say it anyway. Uh, if I see another cool pastor that looks like he's trying to dress like he's 16 and he's about 60 I think I'm going to choke him because a lot of pastors think it's a competition for the cool and and in order to reach millennials and in order to reach the next generation what we have to do is we have to not dress our age and not look our age and try to not and, and try to be really really cool but what they don't understand is that that's not even what the next generation's looking for is it Ask 
Ask a millennial. Ask the next generation what they're looking for, and I guarantee you, you will hear two things. You will hear genuine, genuine and authentic. That's what you'll hear from them. They just want somebody that's real. That's all. Somebody that'll be their self. And if looking cool and, you know, wearing skinny jeans when you're 60 is, is what you want to do and that's really who you are, then that's fine. But if you get somebody that's just trying to be cool, understand it's not a competition for the cool. Because coolness always leads to man-pleasing rather than God-pleasing. And that's not what you're looking for as a church. So we've determined what we're not looking for. What are we looking for? Well, of course, there's the biblical qualifications in the pastoral epistles, and you need to consider those. You need to look at those. You need to make sure they meet the biblical qualifications. But I don't want to talk to you about the qualifications this morning. What I want to talk to you about this morning is the character of the person, the character of the person, the Christ-like character of the person you're looking for. That's what I want to talk to you about. So in the book of Acts chapter 4, we are going to look at Peter and John. You want men like Peter and John. Now it says in verse 13 of chapter 4, here's what happened. We pick up the story, and here's what happened. Peter and John were arrested because they had just healed someone. They were arrested on the for healing someone on the Sabbath. And as they're arrested, this is what happens. It says in verse 13, Now when they, speaking of the Pharisees, the scribes, the people who've arrested them, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and realized that they had been with Jesus. They marveled and realized that they had been with Jesus. That's the key. So there's relational evidence. There's relational evidence that they had been with Jesus. Relational evidence that they had been with Jesus. The first thing I want you to notice that produced in their life was boldness. They had a boldness. What were they boldness about? Back up to verse 12. What it says in verse 12 is this is what they were saying. They were saying, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. They were bold about Jesus. That's what they were bold about. They were bold about Jesus. And they were bold about the exclusivity of Jesus. They were willing to stand up in front of everyone and say there's only one way, and that way is Jesus Christ. He is the only way to heaven, and he's the only way anyone's going to get there. And they were boldly proclaiming this. And it says when they saw their boldness. So the relational evidence that they had been with Jesus was first, it was their boldness. Now, there's a difference between boldness and arrogance. The main difference is this, is that arrogance is the cheap satanic, this cheap satanic imitation of boldness. Arrogance is being arrogant about yourself. Boldness is forgetting yourself enough and putting your side aside self enough to be bold about Jesus Christ. Do you see the difference? Arrogance, self boldness Jesus Christ arrogance putting yourself aside 
or arrogance, exalting yourself, boldness, putting yourself aside and exalting Jesus Christ. So they had that character of boldness, not arrogance. And then it says also that they perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men. Uneducated and untrained men. We just got a bunch of resumes for the position of pastor here, like they're flooding in. And, and my goodness, some of the degrees that have come across the table, people must have been in school for 30 years. And, and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with education. Education is good. Education is right. But let me tell you what education without anointing is. Education without the anointing of God in your life is like a gun without any bullets. One of my favorite John Wayne movies is Rooster Cogburn. And if you remember, there's a line in Rooster Cogburn where he's sitting on the stand and he's sitting on the jury stand and they asked him before he had shot someone and they asked him, they said, they said, was the gun loaded? And he said, it wouldn't have done me much good if it wasn't. And education without the anointing of God on your life is like a gun that's not loaded. It looks really impressive, but at the end of the day, the only thing it'll do is get you hurt. Because it's absolutely powerless. You can have all the Bible education in the world. You can know it from cover to cover. You can have more letters in front of your name than people can count or understand or know what they even mean. But at the end of the day, all of those letters in front of your name without the anointing of God on your life to preach the word of God are absolutely 100% powerless and will only get you hurt. I'm not against education. I'm just against powerless, unanointed education. Now, so what is the anointing of God? The anointing of God, the best way I know to describe it is the hand of God on someone's life. You say, well, how do you know if the anointing of God is on someone's life? Man, I wish I could answer that question for you. All I can tell you is that I don't always know how to tell when it's there, but I can sure tell you when it's not there. You can sure tell when it's not there. So we need someone with the anointing of God on their life. That's relational evidence. Another relational evidence, it says this. It says, when they saw their boldness, they perceived that they were uneducated, untrained men. They marveled and realized that they had been with God. Jesus. How did they realize they'd been with Jesus? How did they know they'd been with Jesus? Because they acted like him. Not rocket science. Not rocket science, not real hard. You spend enough time with someone, you start to act like that person. Sometimes Debbie acts like me. We've been married 25 years. That's a sad thing that she acts like me sometimes. But sometimes I act like her, and that's an improvement. <laughs> you know why? It's because we spend so much time together. And the more time you spend with Jesus, the more you act like Jesus. And just ask yourself the question, do they act like Jesus? And if they act like Jesus, it's not something you have to force or have to pretend or have to play and pretend and act. 
Jesus just oozes out of their pores. And when you walk away from them, you'll go, hey, you know what? I think that's what Jesus must be like. Christ-likeness. When they realized that they were uneducated and untrained men, these men who did not know Christ, these men who, were, uh, these men who did not know Christ, these men who were not saved, these men who were not even believers in Christ knew that these men had been with Jesus. So surely the church of Jesus Christ can tell if someone has been with Jesus. Amen? <coughs> so there's relational evidence. There's also physical evidence. Look what the scripture says. It says, beginning in verse 14, And seeing the man, the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But when they, when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them, is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak no more in this name. There's relational evidence, but there's also physical evidence. The first physical evidence we see in this passage is obvious good deeds. They saw the man healed standing before them. Don't be so concerned about what someone tells you they do or want to do or vision is. Be much more concerned with what they've actually done. They saw the man standing before them that had been healed by the power of Christ. The power of Christ had obviously been working through them. And seeing the power of Christ obviously working through them is evidence, it's physical evidence that the power of God is on their life. You see that? So not only is there evidence of good deeds, but there's also evidence here in the text of undeniable fruit. The Bible says seeing this miracle has been done and that they were standing before him, they could not deny it. They could not deny the power and activity of God on their life. There is undeniable fruit in the man of God's life. A lot of people will say this, they will say this. You will hear them say, it's not my responsibility to be fruitful. It's only my responsibility to be faithful. And that's only half true. And whenever someone says that, I hear, I, my, I, I hear and it kind of perks up my senses and it makes me think, oh my goodness. Uh, yeah, while that's true, the Bible also teaches us this, that the person who is Faithful will also be fruitful. The Bible says in the book of John that he that is faithful, that if we abide in the vine, if we abide in Christ and Christ abides in us, that that person will bear fruit. They will bear more fruit. They will bear much fruit. They will bear overflowing fruit. So if there is no fruit, there is no faithfulness no matter what the person says. Because here's the deal. God said that if we are faithful, then he will produce the fruit, right? Therefore, that if there's no fruit, we haven't been faithful because there's only two people in the equation. There is the person and there is God. And I promise you which one has not been unfaithful. I promise you God has not been unfaithful to produce fruit if you've been faithful. 
If you've been faithful, he said he would produce fruit. So therefore, if there's no fruit, it's not God's fault. Does that make sense? So it said there was an undeniable evidence of this man standing before them. There ought to be undeniable evidence of the power of God on the man of God's life and on our lives as followers of Jesus Christ. There ought to be undeniable evidence of that in our life in the form of fruit. So beware of the person who says, well, I'm not really concerned with fruit. I'm just concerned with faithfulness. To which I would answer, I agree. Now where's your fruit? Does that make sense? So there's physical evidence of obvious good deeds and undeniable fruit as a result of that faithfulness. But there's also unavoidable persecution. In 2 Timothy 3.12, we see that Peter and John are arrested here in this passage. But in 2 Timothy 3.12, it says this. It says, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. All, A-double-L, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. There's unavoidable persecution for the man of God. How many pulpit committees have asked someone this question? Probably not many, but I think it should be on the docket. Tell me about a time you've suffered for your faith. Tell me a time you've been ridiculed for what you believe. Tell me a time you've come against the enemy and it's been hard. Because the scripture says all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will, not might, but will suffer persecution. You say, wait a minute, Pastor, that's for overseas. You can't expect that of us here in America because here in America we have freedoms. No, 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 no. The Bible doesn't make any such exception. The Bible says this. The Bible says all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It doesn't necessarily mean we'll be burned at the stake, but it does mean we will suffer some kind of persecution. What it means is this. It means that if you are going in the direction of God, you will eventually meet the enemy face to face because he is going in the opposite direction of you. And if you never face any resistance from the enemy, and if you never face any attack from the world, and if you never face any of that, then you are not faithful because you are not going in the opposite direction of the enemy to meet him face to face. You're going in the same direction as he is. Therefore, he has no reason to bother you. He'll just let you go on. (coughs) The reason we don't suffer persecution in America is not because of our freedoms in this country. It's not. I thank God for our freedoms in this country. Praise God for that. That's not why we don't suffer persecution. The reason we don't suffer more persecution than we do is because we don't live like Peter, talk like Paul, and walk like Jesus. Because if we did, they would hate us more every day. But when we look so much like the world and so little like Christ, why would they persecute us? So I would say one of the physical evidences in the man of God that you're looking for is that he's faced persecution. And lastly, there's always verbal evidence of Christ. 
Now, there's relational evidence of Christ, there's physical evidence of Christ, and there's verbal evidence of Christ. It says, beginning in verse 18, So they called them and commanded them to speak, not to speak at all, nor to teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing was performed. Later on, they did find reason to beat them, imprison them, and torture them. Now, there's always verbal evidence of Christ. The first verbal evidence is this. It says that whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God, you judge. In other words, they're not people pleasers. The man of God is not going to be someone who listens to man more than God. He's not going to be someone who comes into the church and looks for who the highest givers are and pays more close attention to whatever they want to hear than what the Word of God says. He'll be somebody that says, I don't care what your last name are. I don't care what your first name is. I'm going to love you all the same, and I'm going to love you all equally, and I'm going to love you enough to tell the truth even if it makes you mad. That's what they were saying when they said, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to God or man, you judge. They feared God more than they feared man. And they spoke that. There's verbal evidence of the man of God. Not only is there verbal evidence in that way of that they spoke those things, but there's also verbal evidence in that they could not keep quiet. The Bible says, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. One of my favorite old preachers who's gone on to be with the Lord was E.V. Hill. And E.V. Hill used to speak and he used to say he gets the can't help it. That's the way he would put it. And he would say he just can't help but speak the word of God. He can't help but preach the word of God. Let me tell you something. The man of God does not have to be prodded, poked, coerced into witnessing and sharing his faith and speaking the word of God. The person you're looking for, for your pastor, you have to sit him down to get him to shut up about speaking the word of God. Because he can't help but witness. Jeremiah speaks to this and he says his word was like a fire shut up in his bones and he grew weary with holding it in. He said he would not speak anymore in his name, but then he just couldn't help it. Peter and John were looking at these people and they were saying, we're sorry guys. We're sorry, but I I can't help it. I, I, I can't help it. I can't do anything but speak the things that we have seen and heard because the things we have seen and heard were so powerful, were so life changing, were so gripping, have affected me to the very core of my being that I can't shut up about it. That is the type of man of God that you are looking for. One who can't shut up. They have to speak up. So, this other verbal evidence is what they have seen and heard. 
It is experiential. Christ isn't something you learned about in a textbook. Jesus Christ isn't something that they have pondered in theology. Jesus Christ is a person they know. They have seen and heard as well have studied. That's the man of God you're looking for. I find it interesting the way this passage closes. It says this. It says, since they all glorified God, they couldn't do anything because of the people because they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing was performed. You know what the unique thing was about Peter and John in this passage? It was this. Everybody looked at Peter and John and realized that they were just ordinary people. That's who you're looking for. You're looking for an ordinary man with an extraordinary God. You're not looking for the cream of the crop. You're looking for an ordinary person who worships an unordinary God. Peter and John were ordinary, normal, untrained, uneducated, and the most unlikely people to do that. They were just fishermen. Don't let anybody fool you. They were just fishermen, uneducated, untrained. And people looked at it, and and as they looked at the man that was over 40 years old that was healed, they would look at the man and they would say, well, uh, it couldn't have been Peter and John because they're just fishermen. It couldn't have been Peter and John. They're not doctors. They're not healers. They don't know what to do. They don't know the right words to say. They've not even been to school. It couldn't be Peter and John. It must be God working through them. You don't need an extraordinary man who has glorified himself. You don't need an extraordinary man who everybody else glorifies. You need an ordinary man of God who God works extraordinary things through so that people look at him and say, it can't be him. It must be Jesus. It must be Jesus. The kind of life that brings glory to God. Now, when they saw the boldness, Peter and John, and perceived that they were untrained and uneducated men. They marveled and realized that they had been with Jesus. Have you been with Jesus? Do you know him the way that Peter and John do? Do you have a relationship with him? If so, God can use you. You can serve God in your calling, whatever it is. Have you ever trusted him as your Savior? Do you know him in that personal way? Can you say that you have placed all of your faith and trust in the person of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? If you haven't, let today be the day you do that. Let today be the day you trust him as your Savior and Lord. Let's pray.
Father, I thank you for this time together, and I thank you for your word. I thank you so much for all you're doing in our lives, in the life of this church. Dear Lord, as we've looked at what kind of man of God this church needs to be, we want to ask you together as a congregation to send a man like that. Send someone who may not be the brightest, sharpest, most popular or cool, but one who has spent much time with you. Send us someone cool that Jesus just oozes out of his heart and make us a people of God. Make us a people of God.